Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on December 12, 2018, addressing the new proposed foreign tax credit regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, Mike Erse, Nini Dewar, and John Harrell, all PwC tax partners in our international tax services practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of Section 960 deemed paid credits and expense allocation and apportionment. Have a listen. Okay, so moving on, we're moving to now the deemed paid credits in 960. And John, if you could take us through some of the big thoughts here. Sure. So we have two slides here on this. The, the second slide is uh, sort of a summary of a six-step process in the regulation. That's there for your reference. Uh, I think we're, we're going to skip over it. Um, but it is uh, uh, fairly straightforward, at least in terms of its mechanical application. Um, so 960, broadly speaking, um, is, uh, is a provi- it provides rules for computing your deemed paid tax credits for subpart F inclusions under 960A, for guilty inclusions under 960D, and for PTI under 960B. Uh, these are long anticipated regulations because they reflect uh, you know, a fundamental change in our thinking from uh, 902 pooling concepts where it didn't matter um, uh, what earnings were sort of attributable to the foreign tax credits. As long as you had earnings in the right basket and the inclusion came in, then you, you got your credits. And under 960, we have sort of a sea change um, now the question is whether those credits are properly attributable uh, to the item of income being included. And I think you know one big concern we had before these regs came out, and a lot of people have talked about, is whether that would be a highly restrictive test on a sort of item by item basis that would create a lot of volatility and a lot of sort of foregone uh, foreign tax credits. That, that is not what uh, Treasury did and the IRS did here approach uh, to these um, issues. Um, uh, So these rules operate sort of at the highest level by assigning income to a particular 904D category um, uh, and and then to groupings within that category. And they further sort of subdivide the groupings in some cases. For example, uh, subpart F, um, they do it based on the 954-1C rules and the various categories of subpart F income. Um, or uh, subgrouping within that category. Um, And then once you've sort of made those assignments and done your expense apportionment, you um, determine your percentage of income that's included in the US, and then the taxes that are attributable to that are included on the same percentage basis as the income to which it relates was included in the US shareholder. Um, Now, in making these determinations, um, as as Mike sort of said at at the beginning, you, you look to foreign law to determine, uh, you know, just like under old rules, what, what taxes are attributable to the income. But then you sort of put U.S. principles on um, uh, to, to determine what income is assigned to a 904 category. Um, and as a result, you can end up, uh, you know, in, a, in, in sort of a favorable situation where um, foreign tax credits can be properly attributable to a 904D category, even though the foreign law may see the income as occurring in a different year than the US does because you're putting US principles on. 
And so that, that, that's kind of a, a high level of how, of how this works. I think there's a lot of computation in this. There's gonna be a lot of looking through um, how all of this fits together with other provisions and how one can sort of compute this going forward. Um, there are a few highlights, I think, a few kind of key takeaways that Nini's gonna go through. Um, you know, one is respect to historic taxes, um, how 956 works, um, and then the, the various places where uh, you're allocating income to a category where you'll never get foreign tax credits. And th those are things I think um, that are gonna be important to manage and to make sure that we all have our arms around. Yep. Okay, so this is that six step process that John mentioned that we're gonna kind of skip over, but I just wanna pause for a second just so people can see it. Um, as John said, this is a good reference to go back to to sort of get grounded in how you, how you work through all of the, the rules that he just discussed. Okay, Nini. So as John kind of alluded to, there are a, a few points that kind of jumped out a little bit with the 960 regulations and, and the first one being the 956, which um, I sort of mentioned it earlier that the, the proposed regulations basically said because 956 inclusion or the investment in used property um, isn't considered an item of income and therefore uh, section 960 credit isn't available to that at all. And I, I think the, the interesting thing about this is um, in the proposed 956 regs, I think Treasury is trying to be helpful and kind of limit the application of the 956 um, for, for taxpayer. Uh, but I think to the extent that uh, there's some footfall because uh, people don't qualify, uh, the, the, the earnings don't qualify for 245 cap A exemption and therefore you don't get the sort of the benefit from the 956 regs and you end up with a 956 inclusion, then 960 regulations now tell us you don't get the credit at all. So you could end up with an inclusion without credit. Um, the, the second point here is on the historic foreign tax. So essentially anything not current year is now not going to be available um, for, for, for deemed paid credit. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about how um, 960B uh, will provide uh, rules to, to, to get the, the credits is associated with PTI. So the rules actually, the, the proposed regs uh, under Section 960 provide um, a tracking of uh, and establishing of various uh, PTI or, or the term PTEP um, categories. So, so we see 10 separate categories of PTEP now. Um, the rules didn't go into sort of the ordering of the PTI that will come out because as, as you think about um, the, the, the PTI categories that people might have, you have subpart F, you have toll charge, you have guilty PTI, maybe 956 PTI. So th th that that part is sort of silent right now. And, and I think that the, the thinking is that will probably be covered in the, the proposed um, PTI recs that will come out in due course. Um, the, the last point, I'll, I'll come to that in, in a minute, but like the, the, the picture that we're showing here, we're just trying to, to, to illustrate that um, the, the way 960 regulations uh, are working now, you have to sort of do the analysis from the, from the bottom lowest tier and, and looking up. And, and so we're just trying to illustrate a couple points here that if you have 956, it will get impacted. If you have a distribution of PTI, you have to take into account sort of the categories that, that the, the, the recs are providing and, and also taking into account sort of the, the different categories of income, whether it's subpart F or tested income, 
and 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 other income that the the CFC might have in in determining how the taxes are going are going to be attributed to those um, baskets of income. Um, the last point here is around sort of the the tax year end mismatch and. and and this is the, the the point around if the the CFC has a, a different local year end than the U.S. tax year end, and and you know we, we see a lot of that in in uh, the the one month deferral um, CFC year end that that uh, people might have, and also some local jurisdictions have a, a specific year end requirement, like India has a March thirty one um, year end, so that might be different from a U.S. year end. So um, one of the issues that people are concerned about is uh, the, the, the sort of the reference to the current year taxes uh, or the taxes that are attributable to the income that is picked up um, in the U.S. might be different from the when the tax is accrued for local purposes. So the, the rules under uh, Section 960 uh, regulations actually uh, are helpful in that respect in the sense that the taxes are not going to be lost. Um, you'll get to credit the tax, but maybe um, we should flip to the, the next. So and, and as we do, I just wanted to make one comment just because I think something you said here is really important. It's on the 956 point. You've said it a couple times, but I just want to make sure we, we pause on that for a second. And then that is that if you have a 956 investment, you don't have the credits come up. That is a harsh result. Um, and that's one I'm sure the government's going to get comments on. But one of the points, too, we've got it drawn up here with a loan. 956 comes in a lot of other ways, too. It can be with a pledge of assets. It can be, you know, and you've got mixed messages in a way going on from the government where they're sort of turning off 956 in a way. And, well, they're not turning it off for the income inclusion here. They're turning it off for the credits, and you're going to end up with double tax. So uh, you've got to be careful with 956 is sort of the point. And, and, and that's a great point, too, Mike, that um, 956 is still here. It, it has a lot more limited limited application, but it's still here. So um, it, it, when, when speaking with Treasury, you know, people, uh, Treasury Department in the company, they, they get excited about, oh, maybe we can pledge assets or borrow, you know, lend and... Right. And, That's my point. And, and it might not just be the Treasury Department, maybe the banks saying you can now pledge your, all your assets and your, your stock and, right. and we're okay. So um, a quick example on the, the tax year mismatch here, and, and in this example, we we are setting out um, a U.S. Uh, shareholder with a calendar year end, and the CFC has also a, a calendar year end for local tax purposes, but actually um, has 11:30 year end for for U.S. tax purposes. So um, the, the the foreign taxes would be considered to um, accrue. Uh, at the end of the, the local tax year, so in this example on December 31st, uh, 2018. But um, the, the, the income inclusion um, for, for, for U.S. tax purposes, whether it's subpart of a guilty, will be on the, the end of the year of the U.S. tax year, which would be 11.30. So there's a question of uh, what happens to the tax that, that accrues actually for local purposes, you know, after the date that the the, the U.S. year already ends on 11.30. So effectively, the, the result of the rule is that the, the tax can still be taken into account, but in the year that um, the, 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 the local the tax is actually accrued locally, so in, in the subsequent period. So in essence, as long as you have, as long as the company has the, the category of income 
in that same income and sort of the proportion of the income uh, in the various uh, categories are sort of consistent on a year to year, you basically get to, to, to take all the credits in, in the sort of right category of income for, for, for each uh, in each year. But, but it's, not, it's not necessarily going to be sort of directly related because it depends on the makeup of the, of, of the income in the subsequent period. Okay, thanks, Dini. So expense allocation apportionment. Uh, Mike, you're going to take us through all that they did. This is the big deal. Um, I think this is the most important part of the regs. I mean, there's there's a lot of mechanics about picking income and putting in the right basket, apportioning and allocating taxes to the right baskets. But um, the thing that's going to, I think, make the biggest impact on companies are these rules. So Nini and I are going to actually try to explain the uh, the two biggest pieces of this, which is the uh, 250 treatment, which is the exempt piece, and then how Section 245 Cap A dividends and the deductions that relate to them uh, affect the foreign tax credit limit. Um, you know, before I dive into this, I just want to, and I think the the government was correct in the preamble, um, noting that the foreign tax credit limitation is going to apply to a lot more companies than it ever did. Um, we have a low tax rate. Um, there's countries outside the U.S. that have rates higher than ours. Um, we have a guilty rate that's 13.125. So in the guilty basket, for particularly, almost everybody's excess credit. And that wasn't the case for the last 30 years. The, particularly West Coast and much of the East Coast had a lot of excess limitation, could royalty expense, for example. So there's just a lot more taxpayers that have to understand the 861-8 and following regs and the 904 foreign tax credit limitation rules because they are going to apply to your subpart F and your guilty inclusions. Um, so these regs, these proposed regs, really sort of amend a lot of the existing rules in the 861-8 through-17 uh, prior regs. Um, and they teach us how to do expense apportionment and how to compute the foreign tax credit limitation. So the, the, let's start with the relief we got. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to figure out, uh, not just on the guilty side, but also on the FDII side, how much of a 250 deduction did you get? Um, that income that is... Uh, offset by that deduction is considered exempt income. That affects, for example, um, if you're on the R&D expense apportionment method and you're on the gross income method, I think that means that you don't have, um, you're going to have to reduce your foreign source income by that 250 amount because there's an exempt piece. Um, but on interest expense, which is this, what this is really going after, uh, we're going to go through an example. You have um, characterized an asset that you have in your CFCs, and that asset gets interest expense allocated to it. But because much of the income generated by that foreign group was eligible for a 250 deduction, then part of that CFC asset is going to be treated as exempt. So we'll go through how that, that works. And then similarly, everybody has some QBI return in their CFCs. Uh, they probably have EMP that relates to tested losses. 
you might have EMP that's sitting there because you made a high tax exception election under subpart F. And all three of those types of earnings are eligible for our limited territorial system and, and uh, to the 245 cap A DRD. Well, 904B4 says specifically, you don't count those dividends for purposes of doing your foreign tax credit limitation, but you also ignore the deductions properly allocable to those 245 cap A dividends. Um, so those rules are different than the exempt income, exempt asset rules in Section 250. Um, we'll go through an example on that. Um, I already covered the specified partnership loans. That's essentially where you have a partnership with U.S. partners and the uh, a loan between the partners and the partnership results in a netting for federal tax purposes, but you get mismatches in terms of how foreign source income works. And what those rules say is that you source the interest income received by the partner in the same manner that the underlying interest expense was sourced by the payor partnership. It essentially wipes out, it nets everything away so you don't get any um, foreign tax credit limitation benefit from using a partnership. And I've already mentioned the netting rule. So let's go to um, yeah, the next one is the section 250. Well, a guilty basket would not to be confused with a gift basket, certainly. That's right. So. So again, this is the big basket that hurts a lot of people because you have, you know, I'd say on gen in general from the clients I've met, um, people have an effective foreign rate of 20%. Uh, that basket has a foreign tax credit limitation of 11% maybe. And so you have all these excess credits in that basket. So it's really important if that 11% could be raised to 12%, for example, get, get a bigger uh, benefit. Um, so what does that mean? Well, in the, in the very simplest case, assume you had $100 of U.S. assets and you had $100 of foreign assets in your CFCs in the, in the form of your stock basis. And you didn't have any subpart F, you didn't have any FDII, you didn't have any QBI, and uh, you didn't have anything else but those two baskets. In that instance, prior to the regs, your interest expense in the U.S. group would have been 50% guilty basket because half of your assets were sitting in a CFC that only had guilty income. And that's how you characterize that asset. After these regs, because you get a 250 deduction for half of the guilty income in those CFCs, these regs let you treat half of your CFC asset as an exempt asset. So you eliminate it from the numerator of the guilty fraction and you eliminate it from the denominator. But you also eliminate it from the denominator for U.S. basketing purposes. So instead of having half your interest U.S. source, half guilty, you would be 50 over 150, which is 33% guilty and 66% U.S. So the bottom line is a 250 treatment of your CFC asset doesn't cut your guilty percentage of 50 down to 25. It might knock it down to 40 or 30 or 35 
whatever. You have to do the numbers. Um, last slide before I turn it to Nini. Um, again, there will be dividends. Once people burn through their PTI, there will be dividends that come home that are eligible for our territorial system. And what we get to do here is, again, you're characterizing the stock of your CFCs. And so if 20% if of your CFC is earning QBI return, forget tested losses. 20% of your stock investment relates to a category that the government views as 245 cap A eligible. That means that to the extent you allocate interest expense to that asset, you ignore it for foreign tax credit limitation purposes. So you, you still apportion interest to that category, but you ignore it. And then I'll let Nini explain the adjustment to the denominator. So, but this is different than an exempt asset. This is, um, this is treated as just 904B4. Nini? So I think it's sort of the key distinction between the, the exempt asset treatment and the, the 245 cap A treatment or the 904 B4 basket. I think on the the, eight, the, the, the exempt asset, I think to Mike's point, um, effectively the, the, the amount is, the, the, the exempt portion is, is disregarded for, for both the, the denominator, it, it reduces the, both the numerator and the denominator in the calculation. So to, to Mike's point, um, while it helps with the guilty basket, it could have the impact of um, changing the allocation to the other basket. So if you look at the bottom of the, of the screen, bottom right, you'll see that the calculation is based on the, the, the tested income asset minus the, the, the section 250 deduction and over the, the total asset minus the, the, the exempt asset. And, and that de denominator is used in all the other um, calculation for other categories of income. I mean, w one thing to point out that um, guilty, uh, this, this could have a pretty favorable impact on the guilty basket, but since this rule also applies to um, FDII, so if, for example, you have FDII that is generated by U.S. asset, then the Section 250 deduction that you get in connection with the FDII income uh, will have the impact of reducing the, the, the denominator of the assets as well, which could have sort of the, the, the flip effect on, on the guilty and other baskets. So um, again, to Mike's point, uh, it requires a modeling of, of the whole thing. And then on the, the 904B4 uh, calculation, the 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 adjustment it goes into the, the taxable income of of the of the whole um, the the whole group and the and the calculation of all the baskets. So it could have the, the the impact. It will have the impact of allocating the expense away from other baskets. But again, uh, modeling uh, uh, careful modeling exercises. Okay, Nini. Um, these are just, again, the steps. Yeah. Right? To, to walk through? Yeah, so this is in the 861-13 the uh, regulations. Um, it, it provides a five-step approach to characterize the, the CFC stock. And, and essentially, w without going to, into a lot of details, um, 
it's probably important to note that you start with um, characterizing the stock as um, generating income in the various uh, group, and then assign the stock to the 951 cap A or guilty category. But when, when you think about the, the, the two, uh, two the, the, the dividend exemption for 245 cap A provision, you, you don't take it out from there. The, the way the regs apply it mechanically is applying the inclusion percentage of the, the guilty inclusion to, to categorize um, the, the income from tested income category into the, the, the 951 cap A or guilty category. So applying the, the inclusion percentage will will give rise to the section 951 cap A category, which then you can apply the exempt asset um, or exempt income analysis that Mike just talked about um, to, to, to determine how much is really in the 951 cap A category. And the portion that of the tested income group that doesn't, that doesn't get um, characterized as the 951 cap A would go into the category that ultimately could qualify for the 904B4 um, analysis. Then um, the third step is to do the same thing, uh, getting into the treaty category, uh, assign the stock into the treaty category, uh, and then in um, the subsequent step is to determine how much is essentially of the 951 cap A. I, Items that are not 951 Cap A category uh, assign them to the general versus passive category, and then lastly, um, looking at um, the 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 items that would fall under 245 Cap A and the non 45 Cap A subgroups, and again, that the portion that falls within the the 245 Cap A subgroups would um, would would qualify for the 904 B4 um, analysis. Thanks, Nini. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.